Welcome back to our second episode discussing blood quantum. Today we approach this topic from a more personal level. We're going to talk about how it affects our love lives. (laughs) On our last episode, we really got into the sort of federal policy and the history and the scientific aspects, but all of this is so deeply personal when we talk about blood quantum. And I think one of the things that comes up over and over again, I feel like every time I'm hanging out with especially Native women, we are always thinking about blood quantum and our future fictional, sometimes not so fictional children, which is wild that that's something that comes up so often. (laughs) And Matika, uh, some things have changed, I'd say, since we recorded this episode. Uh, Maybe you might Mm want to talk about why this is particularly salient to you right now. Yeah, we recorded this episode last fall. So, you know, here we are a couple, about eight months later. And surprise, surprise, I'm three weeks away from having a baby. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it's true. I have a man. Uh, his name is Lino. And he asked me to marry him last week. <laughs> it's so exciting. <laughs> Yeah, this is happening. It's wild how much things can change in just about a year. This stuff is real, and now it's even more real. So, I mean, I think this topic of love in the time of blood quantum is one of those discussions that we have had like a million times as like young (laughs) 30-ish year old women who've had to like navigate finding partners and all of these like racist federal and tribal policies, we've really had no choice but to consider how blood quantum affects our children and our families and our nations. You're right. We have had this discussion over and over and over again because, you know, as we do, we discuss our relationships. That's partly what this podcast is about. But before we started creating this podcast, we... How many times, Adrian, over the course of our friendship have we actually had to have this discussion? Oh, my God. I Like, innumerable. I feel like every time mm-hmm. we hung out for years, this would be something that we were talking about. And so maybe for some of you, this topic is new. For those of you who are living and working in Indian country, in whatever way that means for you, this is probably not a new discussion. But... Uh, we thought we would expand a little bit off of what we talked about last week because last week we really got into the policy, into the nitty and gritty of the history. But now it's also too important to recognize that those policies and those are in those ways of describing le- like legalese is actually really affecting us personally as women as mothers, as sisters, as people in relationship with one another. Absolutely. And so this conversation that you're about to hear, um, it happened at the end of one of our really long days of recording. Um, We crammed in a lot of work in a short period of time to get the content together for the podcast, but we felt like we wanted to have this more personal conversation. So what you're going to hear is a conversation between Matika and I and um, our producer, Brooke Sweeney, and our production assistant, Juanita Toledo. And 
it's a conversation that took place with the four of us just sitting around a table with four microphones talking to one another and really going pretty deep we also like to be fair to brooke and juanita we didn't really give them a whole lot of time to prepare we (laughs) just said hey we want to do this episode could you guys come sit down and talk to us and so you know it's an unscripted conversation and it's raw and we have a few disclaimers that we want to just share before we get into things. I think the first one is that we are for cisgender, relatively heterosexual women who are interested in having children. And our experiences are definitely not meant to stand in for all Native women and definitely can't represent the experiences of queer, two-spirit Native people. And this conversation is meant to be kind of just a window, a snapshot, but definitely not the full picture. Yeah, of course, as in all episodes, our opinions represented here do not represent the opinions of all Native people. Right. And then when I was listening to the conversation, I uh, I just feel like I need to add in that we never once in the conversation mentioned the idea of adoption and that that is a very real and viable and important decision and choice um, as well when we're thinking around having kids and what that means in terms of tribal enrollment. And it brings with it its own entire painful history and levels of complication. But I felt remiss that if we put together this whole episode and didn't even mention that, um, because that's definitely something that I think about a lot as a possibility for building a future family. I actually, uh, in the past, uh, fostered children in my community. And so I would love to expand on this conversation into season two, especially with the upcoming Supreme Court decisions around ICWA. I think it's a very important conversation and critical conversation that we definitely need to have. We should we should also acknowledge that this is an emotional episode. We talk about a lot of really hard and personal things from enrollment and belonging to cancer and sexual assault. So we want to give you a heads up that this might be an episode you want to be kind of a little bit emotionally ready for. Maybe you want to give yourself some space to smudge (laughs) or decompress after. But, you know, it's us. So we also laugh a lot. And and we did have to cut out some discussions of having babies with Jon Snow (laughs) from Game of Thrones, (laughs) of going to Germany to find husbands. (laughs) So just be aware. But we don't want to scare you or anything. (laughs) You know, just get your smudge out. We're going to start with me reading from a book chapter that I wrote for an incredible book called The Great Vanishing Act, Blood Quantum and the Future of Native Nations, which was edited by Norbert Hill and Kathleen Rattery, who are Oneida um, citizens. The book chapter is a combination of two blog posts that I wrote in 2011 and 2013, um, brought together with more updated thinking and information. Um, So we'll start with me reading some of that and then move into our conversation. 
Last year, I sat in the back of a lecture hall filled with Native students attending Ivy League institutions. We were gathered together for the annual All Ivy Native Summit, where American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian students from each of the eight Ivy League schools, plus a handful of other local and elite schools, gather to socialize, commiserate, and discuss important issues in Indian country. In this session, students were engaged in an activity comparing, quote, Western success to, quote, Native success. As Western success showed on a bright PowerPoint slide, students yelled out terms like money, a good job, power, individual success. And as we transitioned to Native success, the tone shifted. Taking care of family, community connection, giving back. There were slight murmurs of agreement. Marrying someone from your tribe, and the crowd erupted in claps, snaps, and sounds of agreement. Having Indian babies, the noise grew louder until the facilitator called the group back to order. At the time, I laughed and whistled along with the crowd, and only later did I reflect on the moment and wonder what it meant that a group of highly successful, highly educated young natives, in many ways poised to be the next leaders of Indian country, reacted most strongly to Native success being defined as marrying a Native person and having Native babies. In the 1700s, when the colonizers introduced the concept of blood quantum, they could have never imagined a world of OkCupid, Tinder, Native peoples with Ivy League PhDs, or tribal communities with multi-billion dollar casinos. What does it mean to take a hundreds-year-old colonial concept and apply it to love and dating in the 21st century? As a Native woman in her 30s, these conversations abound in my everyday life. In many ways, I have invited and welcomed these conversations through a series of posts on my blog, Native Appropriations, entitled Love in the Time of Blood Quantum. In these posts, I laid out my complicated feelings of dating while Native. The comments and conversations that ensued after my posts were sometimes hard to hear for their pain and their heartbreak but I am immensely grateful for the ways they challenged and pushed my own thinking. In this chapter, I hope to just brush the surface of exploring the concepts of dating, love, and blood quantum through my own experiences and the blog. This is not meant to be an exhaustive conversation, nor is it meant to be representative of every facet of Indian country. I can only speak from my experiences as a relatively heterosexual, cisgendered, light-skinned, suburban, urban, mixed Cherokee, as well as share the voices and stories that others have graciously shared with me. In 2011, I wrote the first Love in the Time of Blood Quantum post that attempted to lay out some of the quandaries I faced in my desires to date Native men. Reading it now, much of it makes me cringe. However, I feel the comments are some of the best on any post of my blog, and I'm appreciative of the ways they made me question my assumptions and privilege and really forwarded my thinking. These two paragraphs, which I will quote, sum up the bulk of my argument from that piece. Quote, So I say all this as a Native woman in her mid-20s who is thinking about, at some point, settling down, having a family, raising kids, etc. I think about these issues constantly. I'm lucky that my children will be able to enroll in the Cherokee Nation no matter what, since we don't use blood quantum for membership. But I worry about how they will be perceived if they want to be involved in the Native community and are even more mixed than me. I get crap constantly for the way that I look and not being, quote, Native enough, even when the work that I do is completely for Native communities and all about giving back. I think I've cried more tears in graduate school over identity than anything else, and I can't bear the thought of my future, albeit fictional, children dealing with that pain. 
I know they will be culturally connected no matter what, but what does that mean for my future mate? I would absolutely love to end up with a native man, but you need to find me one first. My friends and I joke that educated, motivated native men are like unicorns, magical, mystical creatures that you've heard of and special enough that if someone gets one, they're holding on and not letting go. This is not to seem like I'm hating on the native men of the world. I just don't come into contact with them that often in my whitewashed East Coast world. The draw of a native guy is simple. I don't want to have to explain everything all the time. I want someone who gets it. I want to make cultural references and jokes. I want someone who understands what it feels like to be invisible, marginalized, and silenced. I want someone who supports my activism and social justice work. Can I find that in a non-native guy? Yes, and I have, though they tend to be other people of color. Reading this now, years later, makes me embarrassed. So young, so naive, but time and maturity gave me space for reflection and growth. In the second iteration of the post, which I called Revisiting Love in the Time of Blood Quantum in 2013, I laid out two of my largest oversights in the ways my thinking has matured. First, the original piece was incredibly heteronormative. I never meant to generalize to all Native experiences with the post, but I realized that not even mentioning my blinding heterosis privilege and all of this was hurtful and harmful. In subsequent conversations with some of my queer Native friends, I've listened to their stories and realized that their experiences are in many ways similar, but are further complicated by a panoply of struggles that I can't even begin to imagine. By way of example, a reader shared her thoughts on how, as a queer 20-year-old woman, she's already forced to think about her future children. She says, I'm only 20 years old, in my third year of undergrad, and I'm already having anxiety about whether or not my future children will be native. My tribe has a one-quarter blood quantum requirement, and the only way my children would be enrolled is if my sperm donor, if that is the path my future partner and I decide to take, was at least a quarter Ojibwe. Now, queer people trying to start families is already complicated enough with strict adoption requirements, not to mention the huge cost of sperm donor and similar avenues. Throw in native and blood requirement on top of that, and I am prematurely freaking out about my future family. And the biggest stress for me is not that my children won't be enrolled, because they will be Anishinaabe no matter what, but that my parents and my family will not recognize my children as their grandchildren, because I am queer and I may or may not be the birth mother of my children. As Native people, we all know how important family is, and it's not just immediate family, but aunties, cousins, uncles, grandparents, and so on. I'm worried about how my children will learn about their culture and where they come from if my entire family doesn't claim them, or me, or my future partner. The queer Native struggle is real, y'all. The next way that my own thinking has, shall we say, matured since the first post, the term unicorn. I've come to deeply regret putting that out in the universe and letting it be absorbed into the native lexicon. At the time, that's totally how I felt. I put native men on a pedestal like they deserved all of our reverence and solemn respect, admired for their rarity like an endangered species at the zoo. I've met women when I'm on the road who have introduced their partners to me as, quote, this is my unicorn blank. A friend called a fancy dress she wore at a conference her unicorn slayer dress. Another friend refers to her current beau as Dr. Unicorn. When I started dating a particular guy a couple years back, I got a text from a friend excitedly proclaiming, AK, you found your unicorn. 
I now obviously think this is a problem, one that was pointed out in the comments of the first post and something I dismissed at the time. Exalting Native men like they're the be-all, end-all discounts the rarity and specialness of educated, motivated Native women. I've started to feel that it creates a situation where Native men know they're special and rare and don't treat Native women with the respect they deserve because there's always another eager, intelligent Native woman when you're through with that one. Or maybe that's just been my experience. Colonialism leaves quite a legacy, doesn't it? That to me is the saddest and most frustrating part of all of this. Notions of blood fractions or complete colonial constructions designed to breed out Indians, and now they've been internalized and are being used by our own communities to further restrict not only the futures of our tribes, but our right to love. So is reclaiming your right to love whomever you want an act of decolonization, or is it weakening modern tribal sovereignty? I'm still not sure. With each one of the interviews that I do around Indian country, I'm super interested in identity and love and relationships and especially interested in uh, the ways that we shape our identity. So one of sort of the, the way that I ask the questions is like, what does it mean to be an indigenous person of the territory that you come from? And oftentimes I find that people offer some sort of land-based uh, understanding of themselves uh, or, you know, relationship-based identity. And then uh, I ask people um, if what, what it means to, to be that kind of a person, and then they tell me. And then I ask them if uh, blood quantum is a part of creating that identity or is, does, how does blood quantum factor into your identity? And a lot of times people will say, well, blood quantum doesn't apply to me at all because my my relationship is to the land or blood quantum doesn't really affect me because I know everything about who I am because of my grandmother. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say that that's because of blood quantum, you know, but people then I ask them, well, then is it important to you to marry an Indian? And the answer is usually yes. <laughs> so and so it's a very complicated um, scenario that we're trying to navigate because we're thinking about. Um, how to be in love. We're thinking about <laughs> how to maintain citizenship and we're thinking about what it means to be indigenous people in a modern era where, you know, we are consistently interacting with people who are not necessarily of an indigenous lineage and how do we navigate that? And I think this is just an opportunity for us to sort of navigate those questions. I'd like to start, if it's okay with you guys, just by asking, how do you do first identify um, your indigenous identity and how does blood quantum play into that? Nita? How do I identify my indigenous identity? It's through um, the Pueblo of Jemez, Walato, the Pueblo of Jemez. Um, my grandma always told me that we are actually more Pecos Pueblo, which is a Pueblo that no longer exists, but the people still live on. So my sixth great-grandfather was Juan Antonio Toya, who brought the 18 survivors in 1836 from the Pueblo of Pecos to Jemez. So uh, I, I like to recognize our Pecos ancestors and relatives, but I am an enrolled member of the Pueblo of Jemez, and... 
I I know blood quantum plays a major factor in my in my indigeneity because if I didn't meet the blood quantum, I wouldn't be able to participate in cultural activities. Our our tribe is very strict on who can and who cannot participate in watching certain ceremonies and living in the community and being able to obtain like land and things like that access to certain things so blood quantum definitely plays a role and if I wasn't enrolled I wouldn't know what I know now culture songs language and having those ties to the land which I'm very grateful for because if I didn't have those things I would be I don't know who I'd be. I'd be this chick from Southeast D.C., you know, trying to make my connections to the land. Who knows what kind of person I would be. So blood quantum, it's definitely something that has shaped my life. And I never really thought about it till hearing Dr. King's blog and you sharing your your thoughts about that. It just sort of dawned on me just now. So you're looking at me? Okay. I guess the way I identify myself is multifaceted. I'm I'm an enrolled Blackfeet tribal member, and I'm a Salish descendant, and I'm also Norwegian-American, German-American, French-American, Irish-American, Scottish-American. Um, and I also experienced the same thing as uh, Dr. Keen, um, having people kind of wonder what I am and, you know, where I come from and, you know, that whole racially ambiguous thing. Um, for me, blood quantum has always been a huge thing ever since I was small. And even though that, you know, when I go out of my community, uh, people don't really know what I am um, growing up as a small child on the Flathead Indian Reservation, which is where my Salish family is from, um, there's a lot of racism, and uh, and I was recognized as being an Indian. So, you know, I have that as, like, a very strong core identity, and it's always kind of like that identity is being formed, like, not just, like, in a vacuum. It's, like, being formed by internal and external influences. Blood quantum is huge on my mom's side of the family because basically if she had been born at any other time and off the reservation, she would not have been enrolled. Um, and and it's such a strong part, specifically of my mom's like section of her family, like pretty much all of the siblings, you know, really strongly identify as being Native, um, whereas I have other relatives who, you know, like, I mean, they read our tribal newspaper and... Um, they know that they're Indian, but that's kind of a little bit where it stops. And I don't mean to offend them, but that's just the way that I see them. And then on my dad's side of the family, you know, we have, I mean, the blood quantum is also there because just being codified and put onto paper and having all of these roles about, you know, who can be a tribal member. And because that's where I'm enrolled and because my dad, you know, had the the grace to, you know, sign my papers as an infant saying he was my father. That's, you know, why I, I am enrolled and I have 
nephews who or a nephew who isn't enrolled because his papers still haven't been signed and 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 just being recognized as a a member of a sovereign tribal community is huge um, for us. And I think every, it's kind of like the way I feel about voting. It's like every vote counts. It's like every tribal member counts. Whatever we can do to make sure that, you know, our tribes are strong and populous, I'm all about. I come from a tribe that still calculates your blood quantum, but doesn't use it as a requirement for tribal enrollment. Ours is lineal descent from an ancestor listed on the Dawes Rolls, and you, if you have that ancestor, are able to enroll regardless of your blood quantum. Um, And so for me, I mean, for Cherokee Nation, we have a lot of tribal citizens who have blood quantums that are very, very, very small, um, but they're still active members in the community. Um, And our tribe has always been one that intermarried a lot from early times of contact. And like some of our most well-known tribal leaders were very mixed. Um, And so in that sense, I never really realized that I was lucky in some ways that I don't have that immense pressure in terms of having to think about tribal enrollment for like my future children Um, and I also come from a family where most of my family is not enrolled it's like my immediate family is and most others aren't even the ones who like live in Oklahoma so because it's like an option that they could just do at any time kind of thing Um, so I don't know it's not ever been something because I also grew up around a lot of non-natives I got asked all the time how much I was and so I would keep that very guarded and I never would tell people because I knew no matter what I said unless it was full it was not going to be enough for those folks and so there was no reason for me to like give them more fodder to think that I was not native enough Um, so in that sense I think about and like listening to the blog posts from like the stuff I wrote in grad school, it was like a time of very much trying to figure out if I was doing the right thing and if I was in the right place. And I think all of those insecurities kind of come out in those words as well. So it wasn't, there was fear around not knowing enough about being a Cherokee person. And I don't have that fear anymore. Like I can handle it. (laughs) It's definitely, I'm not looking for a partner who's like knows more about being Indian than me. Like that's not something I desire anymore. For me, uh, I've, I've always grown up uh, with a very strong understanding of blood quantum. And it's always been a sort of a part of the conversation around like my table in my life. Um, you know, I can remember my grandmother telling me from a very young age that you should marry an Indian. I can remember conversations about uh, my mom marrying a non-Indian. And I can remember when my my father, my stepdad, he went fishing with us for years. We had a fishing family. And then my tribe decided that they were no longer going to allow spouses, people who were non-enrolled tribal members, to go fishing with women who were enrolled and so we had this giant fishing business and then a restaurant that also went with the fishing business and all of a sudden my stepdad could no longer fish and it was very targeted um at just like three people in my community and after that happened I disenrolled myself from Swinomish and enrolled myself in my dad's tribe in Tulalip 
uh, t- much to my my mom's chagrin. She, she was devastated, and you know, but very aware that I can't be enrolled in both tribal communities, and that each tribal community defines uh, who is able to be a citizen of their nation. And um, you know, it seems as though almost all nations don't allow dual citizenship. Our people are de- very much defined by our relationship to the water. And we take our babies out on the water with us, you know, for our entire lives. And so if your child isn't enrolled and your baby can't come out on the water with you, then your child is already disconnected from community. Uh, And then they also can't go hunting. It's not as though there's like this rule that says you can't go to ceremony and you can't be a fisherman, you can't be a hunter, but you can't go with your parents. So how would you learn? How do you maintain connection to community? Um, if you leave the res and you don't come back and you bury, marry non-Indians and after how many generations do you look at that child and say, um, well, you don't participate, you don't give back. So are you really a member of our community? You know, And, and so I can understand wanting to create some sort of policy around that. And, and I don't think it's wrong. And I don't think that I really even have a place to have that much of an opinion. I certainly only represent my opinions, not the, the opinions of the people, because obviously our policies are the same. But, but I do know that policy affects people's lives in very real ways. I don't know how it is that we're meant to navigate this, but each of us is navigating it either consciously or subconsciously. And, and for myself, I've really struggled with having to decide whether or not I should, in fact, marry an Indian or a non-Indian, or if that matters to me. And I really would like to know how, what your personal experiences have been like navigating that, that whole, what would you call it? That whole choice, decision, that whole cluster. (laughs) (laughs) It's so difficult. Um, I, I had like dreams of marrying someone from Hamas, a Hamas guy, even though I'd probably be taller than him, but <laughs> I'm like one of the tallest Pueblo people in there. But um, <laughs> I, I did. I wanted to marry a Pueblo guy and have a Pueblo family and, you know, just speak Toa and yell at them, yell at our kids in Toa and just live that Hamish life. And I did try. I did try to date Hamish guys and... Um, a couple times it didn't work out because we were in the same clan, which was so disappointing. Um, and then um, family stuff, just drama, baby mama drama. I don't want to deal with that. It's just, it was, it was hard. So it kind of, that whole, like my little fantasy of having a Pueblo life, it was like the bubble burst because there just wasn't, a partner in Hamas for me. And so now I'm 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 open. I'm open to like love and it doesn't necessarily matter it but I can't say that because I can't say it doesn't matter because like those things are important to me and it's so difficult like like you said earlier uh Dr. Keen like you want somebody to understand you to get your jokes to not have to explain everything you know I don't want to have to explain my res humor to somebody I don't want to have to say well this is what this means and you should act a certain way like it'd be nice to be with someone who just gets it and that's so hard to find and I um 
I dated someone um, from a Hinisaro community, which is a group of non-recognized indigenous peoples, and uh, from Rancho State House. Shout out Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez. Just say his name. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> cool. Just <laughs> shout out mi amor. Um, and that was a beautiful relationship because like he, he got it and he exposed to, to me a whole nother point of view of indigenous peoples who don't have the recognition, who are othered. And I, he taught me that whole world and just seeing life through his eyes, it, it really made me think that, you know what, it doesn't matter, like, love is love, and somehow, some way, I can pass on those teachings. If I, if I do have children, if that is a thing, I can pass on the knowledge to them. I can make my home what it needs to be, no matter who my partner is. I used to want to date an Indian guy, uh, dot not feather just to like have that experience um so my love <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really funny, but, like i i really want to like date an indian guy just just to see what that would be like so i <laughs> I don't know. Love. Did you just want to like be like, oh, he's Indian? Yeah, like, not like, that like kind both, of Indian. both, both, both <laughs> Indians. We're both Indians, but we're different. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm deviating from the question. <laughs> uh, it's all over the place. I'm all over the place. Maybe that's why I'm single right now. <laughs> uh, uh. Last thoughts on love in the time of blood quantum? Advice for young young people navigating this? The only thing that comes to my mind is follow your heart. That's the only thing I can think of right now because as painful as it would be not to... One of the things that really hurts me about uh, being a public woman is that if I were to be with somebody that's not from my tribe, I would have to go away. I, they, that My partner couldn't live in the community with me. But if I was a man, that woman could come and live in the tribe and she would eventually become a part of the Hamas community. But because I'm a woman, and if I date somebody else that's not from him, is I have to go away, wherever that is. And I can't bring him onto the land because that's not how we do it. It's a very patriarchal society. And I think that's like one of the biggest reasons why I haven't committed to a relationship because my ties to the land, to the language, to my family are so, so strong. And it's like the apron strings are so tight. And if I was to be in a relationship with someone who is not from Hamas, I'd have to go away. I mean, I could bring them in, you know, for open, like for feast days, meet the family. It'd be like a come and go sort of situation. But it wouldn't be the type of experience, the type of life that I had growing up. So I think that's one of the most difficult things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Before you go, will you talk about all my relations and your, your community? All my relations. Which is everybody that we're related to, everybody that we're, we consider family. In our way, they always tell us, Shohei, Beta, Bapa, Bae Kono. We're all. We're all each other's big brother, little brother, big sister, little sister. That's how our elders always tell us. And and that's how all, usually the prayers, they always say that we're, we're always our big sister, little sister, big brother, little brother. And that's, that's a teaching that's pretty, um, stop, I don't know. <sighs> I just got all distracted with that thought of not being able to. I never really thought about it till you guys brought it up to me right now. I never really thought about the future and what it would look like if being with somebody with the the most sacred expression of human existence the highest frequency of a feeling is love and to not be able to share love with the person that you love in the spaces that you love to love breaks my fucking heart and think about how such a destructive system has broken so many families because of what colonialism whiteness all these concepts that are foreign to our indigenous innate beings it shouldn't have to be this way but it is as human beings, we overcomplicate things. And why do we have to overcomplicate something as sacred and as special as love? Whew. Sorry to get all emotional. I'm a hypersensitive individual. <laughs> <laughs> I cry in movies. Thank you. Scream. It's okay. I just feel really strongly about these things because I feel emotion so deep and I can empathize with people. I know I'll, I'll never know what our ancestors rent, went through, but those, you know, that's ingrained in our DNA, all of their experiences. And we're healing through it in a time, in this time. Mm -hmm. We're reclaiming our power. I really, we're not native inspired, we're inspired natives. Indigenous mm -hmm. people <laughs> waking up. Mm -hmm. For real. It's true. Hopefully. <laughs>
Brooke, how about you? Um, I feel like Blood Quantum hasn't really affected my love life because um, I feel like Blood Quantum affects um, my desire to have children life. And I haven't really been in a situation where I've wanted to have children. But in a way, it it does affect my life in that if I'm thinking of somebody as like a potential partner, like I've always known, like if they're not, if they're not Blackfeet, then, or if they're, if they're not Blackfeet, basically, like they can't be enrolled because I don't, you know, have enough blood quantum to, you know, make sure that my child would be then enrolled at Blackfeet, um, period. Unless, you know, the, the role, the, the rules, the law, whatever the code you know changes and um there you know there is there's a lot of people who are trying to you know go for linear linear lineal descendancy um back home but um you know there's a lot of of inner inner fighting like about that stuff and um because of you know the idea that if there's more people then resources become scarce where it's actually the opposite if there's more tribal members you know then resources become greater but um for some reason that's not really recognized you know um so mainly it's about you know whether i can have kids (laughs) And if they would then be enrolled. Um, I mean, right now I'm dating a Blackfeet guy, which is the second time I've dated a Blackfeet guy. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I just took a sip of my tea. I don't know. You know, like he's, I mean... He he doesn't, I think he doesn't really think of it as much, you know, because he's, I mean, maybe he does. We haven't really talked about it, but, you know, if you were to have kids or if we were to have kids, they would be enrolled. But if he was to have kids with somebody because he's like basically a full blood, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quote unquote matter in a way. But then it's like that. Then it's like if we keep following this policy of like must be X amount of blood quantum, I mean, eventually, you know, because of where we live and stuff, people will be excluded. And um, I don't think that's ever really been the way of Native communities is to exclude people. However, just listening to Juanita um, with her whole, you know, situation and the way that colonialism has really deeply affected, you know, her tribal culture, well... That's not entirely the case for every community. And then especially like situations, you know, I think about, um, I think the first time I realized that blood quantum was an extra tricky situation was um, when I went to Stanford as an undergrad as well, um, uh, that, that there were Native students there who were native and they were clearly like visibly very indigenous but they weren't recognized as such on paper because like their mom was Hopi and their dad was Navajo or something like that you know where it was like a matrilineal a matrilineal society and a patrilineal society and it just so happened that both parents were the opposite of you know where you could get your 
um, tribal membership from. And I know that there are a whole bunch of Native kids out there who are like that. And, you know, kind of being in that space and not being able to, you know, have the same rights it's so hard because it's it then it becomes a question of culture and like the power of you know culture and tradition and you know what what is more important like this culture or changing culture john trudell would would always talk about becoming human mm. and that we are on this journey of becoming human and becoming into ourselves of and becoming more of who we were meant to be you know it, we have this uh, these concepts built into our way of understanding and uh, when Juanita just got re- you know got really upset thinking about that maybe that could be taken from us it's it is sad it's scary you know and and I've <clears throat> I've I've been in um, I've been in four, like three major relationships with non-indians where it got to the point where they propose, you know, with a ring, like down on their knee. And, you know, I have had to, in that, like in that moment, that's what I thought about was like my grandma and my children's opportunity to participate and whether or not I was going to do that to, to my lineage. And that's a really heavy burden to carry. Absolutely. Fuck yeah. You know. And like even, I mean, with me, the thing that I've been, so there's two things. Like one, I've dated several Native guys and I've asked all of them if they have this same weight of responsibility that we all feel, that we are constantly thinking about our future children and grandchildren when you're on a first date, when you are trying to make decisions about which Tinder profile to swipe on. Mm -hmm. Um, And none of them have said that they even think about this. Like they think, oh yeah, like maybe that's someday, like down the line, but it's not that constant fear, that constant decision point in your head. Um, And that to me is really, I can't imagine not thinking about it. And then I don't even know if I wanna get into this, but like I have been dealing with cervical cancer that is from HPV that was given to me by a native dude who ended up being awful and uh, had, was, uh, had no desire to actually be in a relationship with me or any of the other women that he was sleeping with simultaneously. Um, and the surgery that I had greatly could affect my future fertility and if the cancer comes back like every time that I have to have this surgery it's taking away potentially my future kids and that is something that I can't even process because everything that I do is thinking about making a world where my kids can be more indigenous than me that they can grow up in a way where they don't have to feel that disconnection that I feel all the time, that they can grow up knowing who they are and speaking their language and being fully beautiful indigenous humans. And even though my tribe doesn't do blood quantum, the kid has to come out of me, 
lineal descent requires that they descend from me. And so if I can't physically have a child, regardless of their blood quantum, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and that's really scary. And I... Like my my partner, I love him so much, and I like we talk about kids, and I know no matter what, like those kids would be indigenous, and they'll be Cherokee, and they'll grow up with that means, but like that requires me being able to have them, and that was a choice that was not mine, um, and and yeah, I don't even have a concluding sentence other than like colonization and. It's fucked that up, too. Whew, that was a lot. I know I cried the first time I listened to this back, so I hope y'all are okay. But damn, am I equally, well, both enraged that we still have to deal with all of this, but blown away with how incredible and strong we are and have to be as Native women. When... I listened back to this and I listened to Adrian crying like that over something that's so real. It just sort of rips my heart out. And so I just want to uh, take a moment to, uh, to take a deep breath with the listeners. <laughs> Remember to smudge yourself off at the end of this episode. <laughs> but, you know, I just... I listening back, I, I realized that Adrian's words really make me think of what Ta-Nehisi Coates says. He says, quote, all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy is serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. End quote. Lack of agency is a form of lateral oppression and therefore a form of violence. So for those of us navigating restrictive policies in our communities, we realize that our agency over our bodies, our right to choose who we love, where to live, who to make babies with, and how we will make babies is still extremely restricted. Over and over and over again, in my travels throughout Indian country, our women have told me stories about race and caste and how our bodies are used to perpetuate both. High caste women are sexually restricted, reserved, if you will, while women at the bottom are sexually exploited. Because it's not just about our loss of agency, it's about our safety of body. We know that three out of four of our indigenous women are sexually assaulted or physically abused in their lifetime. It's a crisis, and this topic deserves a much longer conversation. In fact, there needs to be several conversations until our people are safe, until our right to choose who to love, how to love, where to love is upheld in federal and tribal law and policy. So 
that being said, we intend to explore these conversations in our next season and to continue to hold space for our scholars, our thinkers, our activists, our women, our mothers, our matriarchs to continue to have very honest, real conversations about the things that matter to us, to all of our relations. Guess what? This brings us to the end of season one of all my <laughs> relations. <laughs> Holy crap. Oh my God. I can't believe we did it. We feel really good about it. <laughs> I'm proud of us. This was a thing we had no idea what we were doing or how to do. And like, we did some cool stuff. We did some really cool stuff. And I'm super, super excited that it happened at all. <laughs> it was a lot of work, you know, so we'd especially like to thank our all of our people, all of our relations that made this possible. We'll start out by thanking Brooke and Juanita for weighing in on this episode, but for all of their hard work on season one. I guess when we first started thinking about making a podcast, we had to really recruit the help of our friends, our relationships, and it couldn't and wouldn't be possible without the help of our good friend Teo Shantz, who does all the production, engineering, and editing for this project. Shout out to Teo, holding it together. <laughs> and Sierra Sana, who creates the most beautiful episode art for us. She really is amazing, isn't she? Oh my God. I want prints of all of our episode art for my house, so let's try and figure out how to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. We, well, maybe we'll have a party and we can have all of our merch available. Ooh. You guys want to have a party? <laughs> I'm down with that. Party! More than anything, we especially want to thank you, Tigreet Seed. Since, as you may recall from the top of the episode, our good friend Matika is having a baby. <laughs> so season two is going to launch sometime in the new year when her beautiful Bibbit is Earthside. We've already <laughs> recorded some amazing content and have a ton more planned. So stay tuned for conversations on native higher education, whole family wellness, mental health, healing the land, and so much more. Huge wado thank you to our Patreon and PayPal supporters who have continued to make this all possible. Truly, your payments have been what has made it possible for us to do these last few episodes of the season. For, for real. <laughs> uh, yeah, for real. We couldn't have done it without you. Digada Jeli'i Gagayui. Stay tuned. We, we love, love you. you, all my relations. All my relations. <laughs> <laughs>